0: This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. The introduction of critical race theory, or CRT, and race-based instruction in schools has disrupted American classrooms from coast to coast and impacted families from every ethnic, cultural, and income background. Today, we're going to hear from one of the co-authors of a book that tells the story of how over the past couple of years, individual parents, students, and school board members are fighting this ideological indoctrination. Lance Azumi is Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute. He's written and produced books, studies, and films on a wide variety of education topics. His newly co-authored book that we'll be discussing today is The Great Parent Revolt, how parents and grassroots leaders are fighting critical race theory in America's schools. In 2016 and 2017, Lance served on President Trump's Transition Agency Action Team for Education Policy. And earlier in his career, he served as chief speechwriter and director of writing and research for California Governor George Duke Magian. He was also a speechwriter to Attorney General Ed Meese. We hope you enjoy the program. Lance, it is just a pleasure to have you on our Anchoring Truths podcast. And I'd be remiss if I didn't inform our listeners that the main reason why you're on our podcast is that one of our interns that you listeners had heard on a previous uh, episode or two, Emmeline McClellan has since moved on to the world of PR and Emmeline is now working with Lance and it was, you know, due to Emmeline's persistence uh, and assurance that uh, Lance, you were going to be an incredible guest on the show um, that you're here with us now. And so uh, we, we would, uh, you know, we'd like to thank Emmeline and, um, and of course, thank you for this book, but um, just to get us started, Can you tell us what is the Great Parent Revolt and how did it start?
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Garrett, uh, for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. And uh, yes, I I, I want to also... Chime in with some really kind words about Emmeline. She is a fantastic person. Whatever you did, uh, you know, as an employer, having her as an intern at uh, James Wilson, you know, it certainly has paid off in spades with Emmeline. She's a terrific worker. She's an incredibly bright, uh, intellectual, uh, enthusiastic person who has been a great um, person to promote our book. Uh, and so anyway, thank you for what you did at James Wilson to help Emmeline in her career. Uh, with regard to the book, The Great Parent Revolt, uh, the title really does say it all. You know, the, what we're seeing is a real phenomenon around the country. And, uh, you know, the, the Great Parent Revolts, uh, our book's, um, uh, subtitle is how parents and grassroots leaders are fighting critical race theory in America's schools. And I think that's a real important point. Uh, for your listeners to understand is that, you know, for many, many years, uh, you know, American public education has had a lot of problems. I mean, whether it's poor performance, it's uh, whether it's been crime in the schools, all, uh, you know, obviously limited uh, school choice opportunities for parents. And yet, despite all of those problems, you have not seen an uprising. You know, most school board elections, for example, You know, even in in districts where the uh, proficiency rate on test scores are through the floor, you know, generate a yawn at most uh, amongst a lot of parents. And so, it's a real phenomenon to look around the country and to see parents packing school board meetings, uh, writing letters to the editor, uh, demanding uh, to see curriculum and and uh, educational and instructional materials uh, that the schools are promoting, because that's the kind of thing that hasn't taken place up until now, despite the poor academic performance of the schools. And so critical race theory has been uh, kind of the catalyst, the catalyst, I believe, in terms of uh, causing this wave of parent involvement in education. And the reason is is because it really does impact their kids specifically and in, in a way that is you know and, I, and we say this in the book that critical race theory is the most divisive doctrine ever to infect America's schools and threaten America's children. And when you have a doctrine like that that's being imposed uh, by schools, school administration, teachers, uh, boards, etc, and the parents, A, oftentimes don't know about it because uh, you know, it, it comes in it's, uh, under stealth. But uh, when they do find out about it, it's often because their uh, kids are being victimized individually, personally by this doctrine. And because of that, uh, and because the tenets of uh, critical race theory are so appalling, and I know we'll get into that in just a second, but because they're so appalling, I think parents, uh, the, the hair on the back of their head raises up when this is happening because what they're doing is they're trying to protect their children. You know, and so, and it's not, uh, you know, so it's, you're not t- talking about, oh, the kid has to just do more homework to do better in math. This is uh, about, hey, you're forcing my kid to learn things uh, and become a type of person that I don't want him or her to be. And so, therefore, I'm going to stand up for that child and take control of my child's education by becoming active in my public schools. So it seems like from,
0: I'm a parent, but not of a, a- school-age uh, child, seems like the old dictum of how did you go bankrupt? Oh, well, slowly and then all at once. Seems to be how this CRT saga in the public schools, well, and the private schools, but but um, some of the, the, the great flashpoints have been over public schools. Um, it seems like the outcry has been only in the last couple of years. However, you argue that this has been infecting the schools of education and, it, and, and even before that, um, academia writ, writ large. Can you tell us a little bit about where this came from?
1: No, I think uh, you know, th- that's a very good question, Garrett. And you're right. Uh, I think for most Americans who ha- have seen this phenomenon burst upon the scenes, you know, it does seem like it uh, only started like a couple of years ago, maybe like, uh, you know, at the start of COVID. And I think that the reason why uh, a lot of people around the country believe that is because, you know, the schools were closed. So you had uh, the uh, kids learning through Zoom classes, distance learning, remote learning, and, uh, you know, which was first of all, academically ineffective for the kids, but also uh, if there was a silver lining, it allowed parents to be able to see what was going on in their kids' classroom. I mean, firsthand for the first time. I mean, just by looking over the shoulder of their kids, they could see what was going on. And in fact, in uh, the uh, first profile in my book, uh, The Great Parent Revolt, where you profile a a mom in Nevada who uh, first. Uh, you know, found out that critical race theory was being promulgated or promoted in her, her 12-year-old daughter's art class by mm-hmm. looking over her shoulder uh, at uh, what was going on in the instruction in uh, uh, on the Zoom class uh, during the COVID uh, lockdown. Well, so parents learn from that that, hey, there's stuff going on, right? Uh, and again, they they, they, they they start to organize, et cetera. But as you said, uh, Garrett, you know, what we're seeing, though, is kind of the culmination of the long march through the institutions by the left. Mm-hmm. Now, I always refer, uh, I mean, we often hear the, the term the deep state, right, uh, to like the national security deep state or whatever people want to call. It. But I, I, I use the deep state in reference to the education deep state. And so, you know, people think that, well, the, the, the schools are really just the teacher, maybe the principal and the and the school board. But there's a huge edifice of education behind all of that. And so if you wonder, like, why are so many teachers, not all teachers by any stretch of the imagination, but why are so many teachers, uh, uh, you know, promoting this indoctrination is because they themselves were indoctrinated in their teacher training courses in their schools of education. And like one of the first um, uh, studies That I did for the Pacific Research Institute. I'm the senior director of their Center for Education there. And one of the first studies I ever did for PRI uh, back in the late 1990s was to analyze the uh, curriculum of the teacher training programs at the California State University system, which turns out the uh, majority of the teachers in our state. And so what I found was all these things that we're talking about today uh, in terms of critical race theory about a Marxist view of oppressors versus oppressed based upon race, uh, how whites are really the, the uh, allowed to, uh, the view has to be that whites alone are racist. No one else can be a racist regardless of their actions. And so those sorts of concepts uh, were being taught way back 20 years ago when I did my study, when I looked at these books and, um, You know, it's unsurprising then that uh, with the stealth implementation of a lot of these critical race. Uh, theory programs curricula into the schools that you had a, a willing group of teachers who were ready to implement that and teach that in the classroom and a lot of those teachers in the intervening years had uh, risen up to become administrators who are mm-hmm. also in favor of that so you know it's teachers principals and then oftentimes uh you know you'll have school personnel who will run for school board so you end up having them in control of the school board too Brief, so,
0: just just very br- very briefly lands to what extent are teachers' unions also reinforcing this?
1: Oh, they're hugely reinforcing this. Uh, I mean, so, for example, um, uh, you know, the National Education uh, Association, other unions across the country have been openly in support of uh, CRT and so, or, or certainly CRT-related um, doctrines. And, uh, you know, there, there are lots of euphemisms that are used to um, disguise uh, critical race theory. You often hear diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism, education, social justice, all these sorts of uh, euphemistic phrases that uh, people don't realize are actually critical race theory going by another name. But, you know, the unions are definitely in favor of all of these sorts of things. I mean, resolutions have been passed by uh, unions in support of uh, uh, critical race theory. In fact, openly, not just under the euphemisms, but openly, and so... Uh, and then you also have instances where uh, the unions themselves will threaten uh, parents who are trying to get information about uh, the curriculum in their classrooms. Uh, we profile in our book a woman named Nicole Solas, who is a Rhode Island mom. Yeah, Rhode Island. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Rhode Island mom. And she uh, filed I mean, her, her her principal admitted to her that critical race theory was being taught in the classroom. Oftentimes you hear that critical race th- That proponents of critical race theory will say, oh, no, it's not being taught in the classroom. It's only a law school concept. Well, that's that's not true, because, uh, you know, first of all, it's often going under different names. But, you know, there are are educators like Nicole's principal who admits that critical race theory was going on in the classroom. But, you know, uh, in getting back to your question about uh, 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 the unions, uh, Nicole filed one hundred and sixty public records requests. In order to find out what was actually in that curriculum that the principal was referring to. And in response, the teachers union threatened to sue Nicole, because uh, they said that by filing these public records requests, she would uh, uh, instigate harassment of teachers. And so uh, which is bizarre, since like uh, the it was the school district itself that suggested to Nicole that she filed these public records requests in the first place, because they didn't want to admit on their own that uh, what they were doing. And so Nicole is simply following the advice from the school district, files the request, and the teacher unions uh, react by threatening her with uh, legal action.
0: So yeah, you you previewed a few personalities that. Uh... Really, uh, we'll, we'll talk about how you shape this book and what makes it uh, just uh, such a, I think, um, a nice lens through which to view um, uh, the, uh, as you call it, the Great Parent Revolt. Uh, and I think a lot of us uh, you know, might think, oh, these are all local, uh, unconnected issues. However, no, there's very much some through lines um, that, you, that you detail in the book with some you know, very notable differences. But just even before we get to those um, personalities, you know our, our listeners are um uh very much uh, uh those people who want to kind of understand the big picture and uh the context um, in which um critical race theory is offering a, a perspective that runs counter to what we would consider to be um you know first principles that uh this country um rests on. And the one that I keep coming back to in my conversations with people is that what critical race theory does is it replaces the principle of all men are created equal with instead a what i what i you know understand what i try and you know teach people uh, the fallacy that we can glean deterministic traits from the uh, uh from 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 one's skin color or one's station in life um, or, right, uh, you know, one from one's gender, uh, obviously CRT focus on race, but, um, uh, uh, without a doubt, um, diversity, equity, inclusion has a whole intersectional matrix of, of different criteria. Um, and so what I, what I hope you might do is unpack for our listeners a bit. What is it that philosophically is incoherent from the, uh, uh, theorists that you've read, um, and then how those theorists' ideas are sort of uh, made operational in the hands of uh, uh, school school boards, activists, um, and the like?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a very important question, Garrett. So, you know, I think for your listeners, the best way to understand critical race theory is that it's a variation of Marxism. So if you think about classical Marxism, uh, for example, you know, you had an, uh, you know, two groups basically in society. You had an oppressor class and you had an oppressed class. But who belonged in those two groups was determined by economic status. So basically rich versus poor, the bourgeoisie versus a proletariat. And so one of the reasons why, uh, you know, classical Marxism Never really took off in the United States was because of the, you know, huge social mobility, economic social mobility that we had in this country. I mean, yes, you might, uh, you know, uh, start off life as an incredibly poor person. Like, for example, my father, I take my father as a a perfect example. He uh, started off life, uh, you know, born uh, on a sugarcane plantation in Hawaii when Hawaii was still a territory back in 1930. You know mm-hmm. and you, if you talk about the poorest of the poor, that was my father and yet because uh of, of America's social mobility, his ability to uh, he ended up you know joining the uh, the coast Guard get being able to get a college education, then being able to uh, use that in order to better himself, he ended up uh, his life uh becoming the head equestrian trail planner for Los Angeles county. Designed all of the equestrian trails, uh, all throughout the Santa Monica Mountains, which I'm sure you see when you come and visit LA. Uh, beautiful up there. No, that Mm -hmm. was my father. So that was a, you know, huge transformation from a guy who was milking cows on a sugar plantation, you know, when he was a little kid. And I think there's so many stories just like that that epitomize the American dream. And because of that, Marxists couldn't, Marxism couldn't. Under classical Marxism couldn't gain hope. And so therefore, what the Marxists have done is that they have changed uh, the uh, the parameters or just the membership of who's in those classes. So no longer is it determined by uh, economic status; it's now determined by race. So Whites are viewed as uh, the uh, oppressor class, and sometimes Asians, you know, who are viewed oftentimes as white adjacent because uh, you know, they um, are in favor of certain things that are viewed as being um, you know, favorable to whites. Uh, and then you have the oppressed, which are the non-white people, you know? And so the trouble with that, of course, is that unlike uh, the economic Marxism, you can't move between those categories. You might be a poor white Appalachian uh, a coal miner or descendant of a coal mine family, but you will always be viewed as a uh, part of this oppressor class. And so uh, that, that is um, one of the things that the left has figured out is that now they've locked in people into these oppressed and oppressive classes and what and one of the ways that you see this uh, operationalized in the classroom is through the use of the uh, uh term equity now you uh mentioned in your question about equality now equality is much different than equity right. equality is uh like uh, being everybody having the same opportunity to be able to rise to the fullest extent of their potential and not having the government put roadblocks in front of you uh, and prevent you from achieving. Whereas equity, on the other hand, is all about uh, forcing everybody to have the same results, the same outcomes, regardless of their uh, personal abilities. And that's why, for example, you see in Virginia this recent huge uproar over the National Merit Scholarship uh, uh, commendations that were withheld from a lot of students in so many schools around uh, Virginia and why was that? Because of uh, equity. Equity mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, meaning that we don't want some kids to feel bad that other kids are performing supposedly better by receiving this commendation, uh, even if it hurts the kids who were performing better because they don't get into the colleges they want or they get the scholarships they want. And so therefore, I think that what you see here is that um, this is not just a uh, theoretical debate amongst you know philosophers this is something that has real world implications for parents which is again is why uh, you're seeing this great parent revolt because people are actually feeling these consequences in a very real way yeah last last
0: year we had my law professor uh, david bernstein at scalia law school uh, on the eve of the publication of his book uh, classified which details the history of uh, American law on on race, uh, and I was his research assistant for a good bit of the book, and David and I, we were um, constantly confronted by the line drawing issues and the limitations of the kind of groupings that politically we impose on racial categories. Um, for example, Hispanics would include people born in Spain, uh, or they could even include people born uh, in the Philippines, right? Uh, because they might have a Spanish surname. Um, the American law on race just further muddies um, this discussion of CRT because we really are not dealing with any you know, hard objective um, criteria. Uh, instead, I think we're dealing with very much um, uh, facts and ideas that can be um, you know, molded and, and suited to um, ends which Ultimately, um, you know, can can shift and change themselves um, whenever it's convenient. And I think it's in this effort to impose a kind of scientific precision on criteria that resist that kind of neat sorting and grouping uh, that is uh, furthermore at the core of uh, what makes you know parents, uh, in particular, leery of institutionalizing this kind of uh,
1: approach. Would you agree? No, I absolutely agree with that, Garrett. And I'll take an example. Uh, You know, when, you know, before we came on the broadcast, you had mentioned to me that you actually live very close to Thomas Jefferson High School uh, in uh, Virginia, you know, the the nation's top high school. And, uh, you know, uh, there's been obviously a lot of you know, debate over the admissions policies of uh, Thomas Jefferson High School, uh, the watering down of meritocracy there, all in the name of uh, critical race theory and equity. Um, but what's, you know, bizarre about that is that the people who are supposed to benefit from this um, uh, watering down of meritocracy there are supposed to uh, be non white people who are often, you know, especially uh, blacks and brown people. And yet, who are some of the people who are most adversely affected by this are uh, Indian children who mm-hmm. are, you know, are, are demonstrably brown skinned, which is what, you know, uh, Azra Namani, one of our uh, profile uh, moms in the book, uh, who has a child at uh, uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson underscores and said, look, I'm brown skinned and, uh, you know, my child is brown skinned and yet he is being... Um, uh, you know, uh, adversely impacted by uh, this critical race theory uh, anti uh, meritocratic admission system that that school has adopted. So I think you know th- there are these contradictions uh, within critical race theory. But again, you know, simply because uh, you know there are contradictions, factual contradictions, uh, uh, that that doesn't stop Marxists from continuing to promote you know their ideology because. You know it, it what's important is uh, uh you know the end result for them it's their narrative that's important it doesn't matter whether there's inconsistencies or not unfortunately and uh what i'm hoping is that uh you know people will uh understand that that's their goal and that their goal is not to uh help the people they claim to help but it's really to achieve a political ideological end uh more than anything else yeah So your
0: book profiles more than a dozen ordinary Americans who've taken on the extraordinary task of fighting CRT. Um, I hope we can talk about a few of them. Uh, The first that was a fascinating story was Gabs Clark, who was who is an African-American widowed mom of five who filed a federal lawsuit to strike down CRT requirements in her son's school. Tell us a little bit about her saga.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, Gabs Clark is, is an amazing person. Uh, yes, yeah, she's African-American, widowed, uh, mother of five. Uh, when we interviewed her for the book and, you know, through her ordeal that uh, we, we detail in the book, uh, she is extremely poor. I mean, she was so poor that uh, she had to often decide between, um, you know, like buying gas or buying food. Uh, she said that she had only three outfits in her closet. She was um living she and her five kids were living in a motel a cheap motel in las vegas and so you know you're talking about uh you know a family that was really poor she was also disabled too and yet you know uh she was also somebody who uh you know believed in those natural rights that uh you know the james wilson institute believes in and so you know her son her oldest son uh, was in a class at uh, the uh, at, at the at her his school um, that uh, is it was a required class for graduation called the sociology of change, and one of the uh, required. Um, exercises what they was to do a critical race theory influence uh exercise where they had to identify themselves on all these different characteristics race ethnicity religion uh gender sexual identity all these sorts of things and then you know ascribe privilege to these various things well you know the the, and then we get to uh you know some of the complexities that you had referenced uh before garrett is that you know Gabs herself is African American but her oldest son's father so uh, you know at the uh, who is unfortunately deceased uh, was white and so therefore uh, he's mixed race but he uh, actually has the uh, physical traits of somebody who has uh, blonde hair blue eyes and fair skin and so you know uh, you know he he felt that if he were to identify himself based upon those Uh, physical uh, attributes that he would then be viewed in a negative way and in this class. And so therefore he said, no, I'm not going to do this exercise because, you know, it will, uh, I don't feel comfortable doing that and putting myself up for ridicule in this class. And so uh, by refusing to uh, uh, do this exercise and not being given the opportunity to opt out of the exercise, uh, he was giving a failing uh, grade in that class, which meant because it was a required class for graduation that he could not get his diploma. And so, um, you know, and again, like those uh, kids uh, we talked about uh, in Virginia who weren't given the merits, uh, national merit scholarship commendations, would affect which affected, of course, their college applications and their scholarships. Well, not getting a diploma hugely affected uh, uh, her son's ability to get into the school he wanted, scholarships, all the rest of that. And so, Gabs said, hey, you know, uh, we, our backs were against the wall. You know, we we need to do something. And even though I'm poor, I'm going to file a lawsuit. So she filed a federal lawsuit uh, in uh, district court in Nevada and, and said that, hey, my son, uh, his his um, uh, First Amendment uh, free speech rights, his 14th Amendment equal protection rights, and his various rights under various um, federal statutes such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act and others were all violated by the fact that he was being compelled mm-hmm. to participate in this and actually compelled to say things that he didn't want to say. And so, uh, therefore, um, you know, she filed this lawsuit and, um, you know, it's uh, since been settled out of court. But I think that, uh, you know, what it showed and because especially because I thought that was interesting is that in an initial hearing last year, the judge, the district court judge there, said that he felt that, uh, you know, uh, Gabs uh, had such a strong case that she was likely to win on the merits, which I Mm -hmm. think caused the school then to backtrack and then end up settling out of court. So, uh, you know, I think that this is the uh, uh, I think this shows both what is actually going on in the classrooms, regardless of the denials by the uh, CRT proponents that nothing's going on. But also too, it shows that even somebody who you know comes from what you would think to, would be to be the least empowered part of society, right. a poor African-American mom living in a motel with five kids widowed and disabled, that she can actually triumph by using uh, a, a lawsuit to uh, force the school to uh, do what it was supposed to do in the first place um
0: and that's that, that that that's a that's an incredible um account right there of somebody who really was not familiar with how to uh challenge this and yet um you know she she really had to take it on her own and thankfully she was you know connected with um lawyers who could advance her case but um you know i think that kind of shows the <laughs> yeah, we talk about with CRT a lot like the power dynamic uh, we're dealing with Uh, individual, especially, you know, uh, sometimes in Gabs Clark's case, like single moms having to put together uh, the equivalent of like a David versus Goliath legal strategy. And I think that's something you detail in the book very well. But I find just an ultimate irony here that, you know, the advocates of CRT have a ton of, you know, not only um, cultural power, um but also actual like fiscal fiscal power and institutional power um with which to defend um the doctrine so um you know the next two cases uh out of virginia uh which uh for our listeners uh they know that the James Wilson Institute is is in virginia we'll, we'll talk about um two um individuals who are uh in the uh, in the virginia in the dc suburbs in virginia Um, fighting uh, uh, CRT, and so the first is Xi Van Fleet, who escaped to America from Maoist China and has been bravely opposing uh, group-based discrimination in Loudoun County, and so for our listeners who aren't familiar, Loudoun County is a little further to the um, uh, west of Arlington, uh, which is right next to Washington, D.C., but it's still very much um, in the Washington, D.C. suburbs, um, although it, it exemplifies uh some of the political shift because Loudoun County used to be uh, considered to be a Republican stronghold. But now it's it's very much in the last few decades become a Democrat stronghold. So there's a political dimension here, um, which uh, 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 you, uh, you know, uh, you can speak to. But can you tell us a little bit about Xi's background and the similarities uh, she sees between Mao's cultural revolution and America's um uh, obsession in her view with CRT.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I thank you very much. Uh, yeah, G. Van Fleet, one of the most fascinating stories, I think, in our book. And we have, and all the stories we have in our book are, are fascinating. But G.'s is really uh, poignant because she actually has the experience of growing up under one of the most brutal totalitarian programs ever to uh, be enacted on the face of the earth, and that was the cultural revolution in China under uh, Mao Zedong, which killed millions of ordinary Chinese people, uh, you know, simply because of, uh, you know, the class they belonged to, their political beliefs, uh, you know, their possessions, whatever. I mean, anything that was considered to be anti-revolutionary or counter-revolutionary was, uh, you know, set up as a target for Mao and his uh, youthful Red Guards, who are often middle school and uh, high school kids. But so Ji Van Fleet grows up at, right at the time when the uh, Cultural Revolution is being imposed on China. And what did she see? First of all, she saw at first, she thought it was just going to be a propaganda campaign because she saw posters go up uh, you know, in the classroom and around the, her town. But then she uh, saw that uh, it then devolved into this campaign of violence against anyone who uh, the communists viewed as being, uh, again, counter revolution anti revolution let's say, whether they belonged to a land, landowner class, whether they had, um, you know, nice things in their house, or even how they dressed. She, uh, she was saying that, you know, she witnessed uh, some of the young red guards in her school uh, grab a teacher who liked to wear her hair in a certain hairstyle that really wasn't permitted uh, by the communist party. And they, she was, she had a a mass spitting where every, all these red guards spit on her because she was wearing the wrong hairstyle. And so, you know, she saw this, she saw uh, people uh, killed, uh, dragged out of their homes and killed. Uh, She saw show trials and all because people belong to the wrong class. And uh, uh, she said what was uh, important to understand in China is that uh, people belong to these classes based on their economic status, again, Mm -hmm. uh, as in classical Marxism, but you couldn't escape it. Unlike America, where you could, you know, uh, escape your economic class uh, by, you know, social mobility, you could not in China. And so if you were part of, uh, if you were the grandchild of a landowner, you were still viewed as a landowner. And, and you wore a black hat. Basically, you were viewed as having a black hat because of that. And so therefore, you know, uh, uh, she sees the same thing going on in America now, where instead of, um, you know, economic class, you see racial uh, racial. Uh, groups being substituted for these economic classes. And you can't escape it. Just like in China, you cannot escape it. You will always be white. You will always be Asian. You will always be African-American or Hispanic, whatever. You can never escape your group membership. And she said she came to America uh, for the promises of freedom and liberty and the American dream. And, you know, she, she should not have to feel that because she's achieved a certain amount of success in America. That mm-hmm. now she's part of a oppressor class because Asians are oftentimes viewed as being white adjacent, and therefore white allies. <clears throat> and she uh, she's seen you know what's gone on in Loudon County and in uh, Thomas Jefferson and all these other places. And she says, "I, I cannot, uh, you know, allow my adopted homeland to become." My original homeland again. Mm -hmm. And so that because she can see that once you lose, for example, things such as freedom of speech, then the next thing you lose, I mean, she says the next thing you could lose is your life. And she's seen it happen. And we think that it can't happen in America. But she she and other immigrants that we talked to in our book say that America has to wake up because they have seen this uh, play enacted in their own countries, and we need to stand up against it now. And, you know, uh, one thing that Gabs Clark said is that if you don't stand up for your rights, you don't have rights.
0: Mm -hmm. That's right. Justice delayed is justice denied. So, um, the second personality out of Northern Virginia is one that, you know, if you've been following these uh, school board uh, protests uh, on television. She is a very familiar face and name, and it's Asra Nomani. Uh, now, Asra is a Muslim Democrat whose father marched alongside Gandhi and who's been vocally opposing the discrimination uh, uh, against Asian Americans in Fairfax County in Virginia. Um, that's a little south of Loudoun, but it's still very much DC suburbs. Um, and you detail in the book what led Asra to speak out, but um, Put for, our, for the benefit of our listeners, how has she been fighting Virginia's educational bureaucracy and, you know, what has her fight revealed?
1: Well, uh, you know, Azra, as you say, is uh, in Virginia a well-known person, I think, by now. In fact, I was just on uh, Fox and Friends uh, a couple weeks ago uh, talking about uh, the uh, National Merit Scholarship. Controversy in Virginia, and Azra was actually the person who was on the segment with me, and okay. so she, she's a she, no, she's an incredibly articulate person, knows uh, this issue backwards and forwards, and you know, uh, you know, in addition to uh, the things that uh, you say about you know her background of being a, a single mom, Muslim, immigrant from India, I mean, one of the things I think is really important in terms of the way she views things and why she views a critical race theory as such an evil is because. Uh, she worked for a time for the Wall Street Journal. And one of her colleagues was Daniel Pearl, who, uh, you know, who many people. Oh, right, right, right. Who was beheaded in 2001. That's right. Because he was Jewish by uh, his, his captors, uh, his terrorist captors. And, you know, what uh, Azra says is that when she looked at the tape of uh, of his decapitation, which obviously was horrible, and uh, especially since she was his friend. But what she saw was somebody dehumanized because of who they were, because of their race, because of their religion. Somebody who uh, was not viewed as an individual person, but simply a member of a group to be demonized. And so from that experience, you know, she, uh, you know, has now come to fight against critical race theory, because that's exactly what critical race theory. It puts all of us uh, into uh, group membership and doesn't look at us as um, uh, individuals. And what she's done is she has fought the watering down of um, meritocratic uh, admissions policies at Thomas Jefferson, uh, and especially how they harm Asian Americans. Uh, When uh, the uh, admissions policy was watered down initially and implemented, uh, the drop in Asian American admissions to Thomas Jefferson was 20 percent, just about 20 percent drop in uh, admissions for Asian Americans. And they did this. I mean, it was uh, in such a bald faced way by, uh, amongst other things, uh, limiting the number of uh, kids who could come from any particular middle school uh, that was a feeder school into Thomas Jefferson. Well, there were only uh, three uh, different middle schools that had a large Asian populations in uh, the area that fed Thomas Jefferson. Well, you limit those, then you of course limit the number of Asian Americans, and so she has fought that because you know she's uh, you know she had been told by. Uh, 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 at Thomas Jefferson that, you know, Asian Americans are white adjacent. They're resource hoarders. They're all these terrible things in order to shame uh, the Asian uh, parents, because one of the things that is, you know, unfortunately culturally effective against Asians is cultural shaming. And so she has stood up to that because she has seen that, you know, in her life, You know, as an Asian person, Indian, also Muslim, you know, as a single mom, which in 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 the Muslim world is viewed in many parts of the world as not just a sin but as a crime, and so therefore, you know, she is standing up against it and saying that no, this is we're not going to be shamed into silence. We are going to uh, fight for our kids because they should have the equal opportunity, again, equal opportunity to uh, vie for every space in that school, not just a, basically what's uh, a set quota for them of Asian Americans. And so therefore, uh, you know, she has, um, uh, you know, uh, been part of the coalition for T.J., which has filed a lawsuit against the school in order to uh, change their policy because they, it's based on uh, unconstitutional grounds. And also she has filed 200 different um, public records requests to reveal the diversity, equity, and, and inclusion consulting uh, mega industry that has signed contracts with various school districts in Virginia. And so, and to find out where all the money is going. So, she has been an incredible force. And again, you know, when we talk about the great parent revolt, there's no better picture of that than Azra Nomani. No,
0: no, there isn't. Uh, and yeah, it's sort of a cautionary tale if CRT can take hold in a school like Thomas Jefferson, routinely regarded as the, the nation's um, top ranked and finest public high school, um, which focuses on. Uh, Uh, STEM, then it can really take hold anywhere. Um, uh, The last personality we could, we could talk about all all the personalities in the book, but the last we'll have time for um, is uh, one that you sort of associate with a hopeful future for the um, movement to push back or even um, remove CRT from our uh, uh, public school and, and private school curriculum. And that's, um Ryan Gerdusky. now Ryan is another figure that uh, folks on TV will uh sorry folks who watch TV will will certainly be familiar with the name Ryan you detail in your book uh not for his um you know broader political advocacy um he is a you know political consultant for campaigns but it's really what Ryan seized on uh what he sort of uh, uh uniquely has contributed to this uh parental revolt and that's been the 1776 project pack well named because of its um uh, uh distinguishing between the 1619 project uh, pack we've had uh several podcasts in which we've discussed the 1619 project so our listeners are are familiar with its connection to the the intellectual um uh, basis for uh, for um uh CRT but why did you look at Ryan's activities as hopeful? Like, what did you see in Ryan's uh, work with parents to give them the tools in these school board elections? So let me backtrack for a moment. So Ryan's 1776 Project PAC, as you describe in the book, was responsible for financing uh, dozens of school board races um, just in the last um, year or so. And it's already taken off. And uh, I can only see the pack attracting more money and more interest, um, largely because of how inexpensive it is to run a school board race, uh, but also just the uh, relative inexperience with political action committees funding school board races um, because up to recently, they, they just were not nearly as, you know, political or at least, you know, national issues uh, like CRT did not dominate local school board races. Uh, but just to get back to the, the question that I was um, about to phrase, but why do you see Ryan's approach and Ryan personally, why do you see that as so hopeful um, in, the, uh, in the overall efforts?
1: Well, and I think that's a very good question, uh, Garrett, I mean, because I, I, the, the important thing in our book, The Great Parent Revolt, is that we we don't want to just show, okay, parents getting upset, right? And it's great to have activism, and that's important. It's great to have individuals like Gabs Clark who file lawsuits, but not everybody's going to file a lawsuit, right? Now, what can parents do? you know, to channel this uh, outrage that they're feeling at critical race theory in a positive way, that's going to result in positive change in education policy. Well, one of the ways is that they should run for office. They mm-hmm. should run for school board and change the direction of uh, uh, the school board and the school district. And because, you know, if, if you're mad at City Hall, run for mayor. Right. And so... Um, you know, when that type of philosophy, you know, we looked at, uh, you know, how parents were becoming candidates in huge numbers, you know. And, and again, you know, I, I go back to what I said, you know, initially in this podcast is that you didn't see that, you know, when test scores were going through the floor. Parents weren't running for school board. But because of critical race theory, all of a sudden parents start to sign up to run for uh, school boards and uh, and to take control of their kids' schools. And I think Ryan Gerdusky saw this. First of all, he saw uh, what was going on in the classroom by looking at, now he himself doesn't have children, but he ha- uh, looked at what was going on with his uh, relatives' kids, his godchildren, and he f- saw the critical race theory that was being uh, promoted in their classrooms, and he was appalled by that. Yeah. And so... Because he had this experience this background in politics, uh, he was able to figure out that the way to have the most impact was to create this seventeen seventy six project pack that focused only on school board races and so unlike so many of the other packs that everybody's familiar with, which are you know view looking at uh state legislative or congressional or presidential races that this uh Uh, pack of ryan's only looks at school boards and uh, he he chose you know key races around the country key school boards around the country to influence and uh, he didn't try and you know give a dollar to every candidate he really focused his uh small amount of money that he was able to raise and and to fund those into races that would have uh make a difference in the winning and losing but then also have an impact uh immediately. And I and so he ended I, up. I think I read
0: Ryan I think I read Ryan as saying something like the average school board race budget is seven hundred and fifty dollars. I might be wrong about the precise dollar amount, but I can assure you it is a fraction of what even the average state Senate or state representative race is. And that's uh, I, I, that's not even getting to you know, federal congressional races or, or Senate races. It is just vanishingly small, the amount of money that can have an impact.
1: No, that's absolutely right, Garrett. I mean, you know, like if you look at like some of these big city uh, school board races, like you know, in my home state of California, like the Los Angeles Unified School Board. I mean, it takes a boatload of money to win a, a race on the L.A. school board. But that's really an anomaly. You know, as you point out, the average school board race doesn't take a lot of money. You can actually have a great deal of influence, uh, as Ryan has, by actually, uh, you know, uh, donating or channeling a relatively small amount of money into, uh, you know, a particular district. uh, Because, you know, really the only people who have contributed large amounts of money in the past were usually the local teachers unions. And so that's why they would have an outsized influence because they have uh, the money to spend. But also, too, because school board races are usually very uh, low voter turnout races, um, you know, if you have a, a special interest group like the Teachers Union pushing their members and their allies to the polls, well, they have a huge advantage over the parents, even if they don't represent uh, the views of parents on all kinds of issues. Well, what Ryan has figured out is that not only does that relatively small amount of money make a difference, but also too, that all I have to do is actually increase the percentage of people voting on our side, the anti-CRT side by a relatively small percentage. And by increasing that in a low uh, percentage uh, uh, um, uh, voter uh, uh, turnout election, that's going to make the difference between winning and losing. And so if he turns out 5% more, 10% more uh, people, uh, uh, you know, in his base, well, in an election where only 10% of the people vote, that's going to be a huge difference, uh, you know, in terms of winning and losing and overcoming the institutional advantage of the teachers union. And so uh you know, he's done that and it's proven to be a hugely successful formula. Uh, I think that uh, he won 80 percent of his races the mm-hmm. first time uh, he got into the political water uh, by uh, with the 1776 Project PAC. Um, he's continued to do well in uh, subsequent elections. In fact, in this election cycle in November, uh, my understanding is he continued to do well. So, you know, I think that, you know, uh, it's going to be. Um, a model that, uh, you know, the anti-CRT side, you know, should really look at because they can have a real outsized influence for really not a lot of money. Because when you look at the amount of money that Ryan has collected, it's really not very much in the whole scheme of things, uh, but uh, they do make a difference. And one last thing I would say about uh, Ryan and his success is that it's bipartisan success. You know, it's not just, oh, we just got to turn, uh, you know, get to more conservative donors or more Republican donors. Actually, you know, a lot of his contributors, some of his biggest contributors uh, are Democrats and they're the ones who are often like, you know, the most turned off by what they're seeing in the classroom. Uh, You know, for example, in my own home state in California, which everybody, uh, you know, knows is a very liberal state. And yet, you know, who rose up against the mandate uh, for uh, mandatory uh, ethnic studies curriculum in California were often liberal Democrats, especially uh, Jewish Democrats who saw anti Semitism and other types of anti Jewish uh, elements in the ethnic studies proposal here in California. And so you have a lot of Democrats who are also uh, very wary of this critical race theory Trojan horse that's being pushed by the education deep state. Yeah, and, and full disclosure for our listeners,
0: uh, Ryan and I um, know each other. Uh, we uh, went to uh, one of the Claremont Institute's conferences a couple of years ago, and that's how I was put on to his work um, and uh, have since been uh, avidly following it. And um, uh, like Ryan, uh, I, I'm from Queens, so there's some scrappiness in Ryan that I think just kind of makes him a happy warrior. And uh, it, it definitely, I think uh, it comes through in your chapter on Ryan that you know, he's uh He's scrappy, you know. He's not the kind of guy that is looking to sort of make this uh, uh, what uh, what some would call like a grift or you know use this as his piggy bank. I mean, no. Ryan's results oriented. He wants to you know make 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 an impact, make a difference. And uh, I think um, you know uh, this uh, this recent slate of school board elections um, you know shows uh, he's going to be shrewd about this. Um, and so um, yes, indeed, I think. Um, you're you're right to be hopeful um, that he will hopefully uh, bring forth copycats um like him if not uh, you know just growing his own his own pack so uh, in closing you know one of the big questions that your book the great parent revolt raises is what next and you've detailed how parents are fighting back some of them against incredible odds and and bravely uh doing so and you know, many of them are scoring big wins. But once they've successfully overturned you know, critical race theory in their local school district, what kind of curriculum should take its place? Is non-ideology the goal? Is um, something like what we at the James Wilson Institute would call uh, sort of a, a classical um, education uh, that reflects uh, the natural law uh, based foundations of America, uh, of America's founding Um, Would that be what, you know, you you, you think an improved curriculum would look like? What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think that, well, first of all, there are a couple of things I would say uh, about that, uh, Garrett. Well, first of all, is that you're right. Uh, You can't fight something with nothing, right? So if you're against critical race theory, well, you know, if you do win, you know, whether it's through a lawsuit, whether it's through school board election or something like that, well, you're going to have to, you know, be able to tell uh, people that, I, it, it, that critical race theory was replaced by something better and so uh what should uh parents do about that well I think one of the things and I, and we we profile a, a couple of parents in uh, one of our chapters of our book um uh elena Kaplan and Leah Renson. now leah is the granddaughter of holocaust survivors and uh and elena is uh a, a, a refugee from the communist Soviet Union. And, um, one, you know, Leah is a Republican and uh, Elena is a uh, Democrat, but they came together, you know, because uh, in California, I mentioned this ethnic studies issue. You know, the, the state was going to impose an ethnic studies requirement on all schools that it had to be taught, uh, you know, before graduation. And the um, the model curriculum that the state initially proposed was so bad that you had this grassroots up or against it. Well, Elena and uh, Leah formed uh, the uh, Alliance for Constructive Ethnic Studies, which proposes a different type of ethnic studies. The uh, ethnic studies that had been proposed, which was very CRT-oriented, very Marxist-oriented, which uh, you know, again, you know, viewed uh, things through a racial lens, viewed things through a Marxist lens, which viewed, like, for example, capitalism as part of white supremacy in uh, property rights. As part of white supremacy that that was wrong that was too ideological and so and didn't give uh, a fair representation of different viewpoints and so uh, what they advocate is something called uh constructive ethnic studies uh which um says that hey you know uh, there are things such as objective facts uh, which the left denies uh mm-hmm. there uh, and that you know, we should have different views, though, uh, allowed on issues that are of great importance, you know, uh, that have to do with race, that have to do with discrimination, and that you can't just shut down one side simply because you disagree with it. And so, uh, you know, their push for constructive ethnic studies has actually proved productive in some of the uh, districts here in California, which have adopted a constructive ethnic studies alternative to this Marxist liberated ethnic studies paradigm that's being pushed by the left. And so uh, in Los Angeles Unified, uh, for example, has actually implemented a um, a constructive ethnic studies uh, program there, which again, you know, emphasizes the importance of the individual, emphasizes uh, that there have to be different viewpoints represented, you know, and that, uh, you know, you can't just, uh, you know, uh, Peg people based upon their uh, racial group membership. And so I think that what uh, Leah and Elena represent in terms of, uh, you know, both left and right politically coming together to offer a better alternative. And that's what I think is really important, is that they offer a better alternative uh, than what the left is pushing and uh, uh and i think that that is what again makes me hopeful that uh you know we will I- win this battle because not only do we have the uh the energy of the grassroots amongst the parents not only are we winning these elections but also too uh, you're seeing uh these victories now uh in uh you know actual policy being implemented by uh, these uh school boards that uh, not only are they um You know, passing bans on CRT. But there are alternatives that are available uh, to uh, schools to uh, uh, that uh, is different uh, than the the Marxist uh, programs that are being pushed by the left. Uh, Finally, let me just say that ultimately the way that you can get to something like a classical education model, which I support and which I've actually profiled in my book uh, uh, that I did previously called Choosing Diversity on Model Charter Schools, is that you know we have to have greater school choice. And that's one of the ways that uh, we're going to have this uh, ability to have different viewpoints represented because if, you know, you can't change the direction of your local school board because you don't win the election or you don't win a lawsuit or whatever, you know, you still can have choice uh, in terms of choosing whether it's a private school, homeschool, whatever. You choose that curriculum that best meets the needs of your child and leaves out the propaganda. And so I, I think I've just written an article for PRI saying that the ultimate solution to the uh, CRT problem is school uh, parental choice.
0: Well, for someone who's looked at this debate uh and this um you know ongoing saga as, as closely as you have um it is hopeful to know that you do think that uh we've somehow turned a corner and there's reason to be hopeful so to lance uh and his co-authors of The Great Parent Revolt, we're just uh, really really pleased um, that you've brought forth this book, um, and Lance in particular thank you so much for joining us on our podcast uh, we this wish you well and we'll make sure that our listeners to um, have James a link to, uh, to buy the book Natural uh, for Rights themselves the American well thank
1: you very much Jared, like it's been more about a great about pleasure the James Wilson to be able to Institute. sit and chat with Please you to uh, and provide Wilson this information Institute on our book The Great or. Parent Revolt to your listeners, which they can uh, purchase at Amazon.com or any online bookseller, but really appreciate the conversation more than anything else. Thanks.
0: Thanks.